Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener is brought to you with support from Bunnings Warehouse. Hi there and welcome to episode four of Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener. I'm Jo McCarroll, I'm the editor of New Zealand Gardener and with me is Rachel Clare who edits our weekly e-zine, Get Growing. Hi Rachel. Hi Jo, how are you? Very well, thank you and very excited because this is such an exciting time of year. There is so much to do in the garden. I am so in love with my garden right now. I can never decide whether I like spring or autumn more. They're my top seasons. But right now, like this is when I like to show off my garden to people. It's like doing its November best. And it's just full of roses and penstemons and flowers everywhere. And I've had an amazing crop of strawberries this year that I'm super proud of because I kind of had almost given up growing them. But I moved them to a new bed this year and I also feed them with a tomato fertiliser, which is potassium rich so therefore is good for strawberries as well and I netted them and I've got such a good crop and I've been photographing them putting them on Facebook and I um, even made my children get off their computers the other day and come out and pick them with me as a wonderful pastoral type experience. What a treasured memory I hope you had a floaty white dress and a hat on. To be sure I did. (laughs) So what are you doing in your garden right now? Well, as well as just grazing off the garden and picking sugar snack peas and things and nibbling them, I have been killing slugs and snails. Now, I'm not that comfortable with killing, I have to tell you, and snails are actually quite cute. Do you find them cute? Mm. Anything with a shell is cute, right? Mm, I think their mothers love them. Do they have mothers? Are they parthenogenic? I've forgotten. When they mate, when snails mate, the male fires chalky love darts into the female. Isn't that cute? Mm, I don't think I'd like it, personally. But anyway, there are heaps of snails down the sides of my raised beds, and I was like, okay, I need to be ruthless. So I gathered a whole lot up, and I put them into a container of water, but they all started sliding out. So then I put some dishwashing liquid in, And then I thought, is this actually cruel and is it kinder to actually just stomp on them? Mm. Which then maybe provides food for the birds and it's a quicker death. I know a reader got in touch and said the quickest way to dispatch slugs and snails was to put them in an ice cream container and then put them in your freezer. And then they freeze to death and it's relatively painless. But she said the one downside was next time her family went to get ice cream, they were bitterly disappointed. (laughs) Imagine that. Well, I have been feeding my tomatoes. Um, It is a good idea, once your tomatoes start flowering, which they should definitely be doing now, to switch from using a general purpose fertiliser to using one that's designed for fruiting plants. Like Rachel said about the strawberries, that'll be a fertiliser that's potassium rich. Um, If you continue giving them just your general fertiliser, it's probably going to be high in nitrogen. So that's going to support lots of leaves and not so many flowers and fruit. Um, But um, the good thing is you can use a potassium rich fertiliser such as a tomato fertiliser, on all your fruiting plants. So you can use it on your strawberries, you can use it on your eggplants, you can use it on your capsicums. It's going to have the same effect, which is to support the flowers and fruit. I've planted five types of tomatoes. Only five? Well, I've gone for cherries all in different colours and one heirloom because I just find that cherries do so much better than the heirlooms. It's a big call. Um, I'm also planting corn. Now, corn is a great crop to grow, but it does need to be warm enough. So I'd hold off and not sow early with corn and wait until later. Sow it in blocks rather than rows because it's wind pollinated. So you need the pollen to drift from one plant to the other. If they're too spaced far apart, you'll get really poor uh, set of husks or you'll get the the missing um, kernels within your corn husks, which is where one kernel has not been pollinated. I've always wanted to grow that strawberry popping corn. I think you buy it from the Koanga Institute. 
cute and they're quite little cobs and they look like little strawberries. They are so cute, aren't they? Honestly, you could just have them as ornaments. Totally. Now, I have been thinning my Golden Queen peach tree, which is true royalty. I've never done this before, but last year it had some fungal disease and I didn't get a very good crop. So I'm taking off the fuzzy green peaches and you should do this on um, pip fruit and stone fruit when they're about marble-sized. Now, the reason you thin your trees is because it stops the tree from getting burnout, really. Mm. Sometimes trees overreach themselves. Yeah, so you don't have a massive crop one year and then it's so exhausted that it hardly does anything the next year. Mm. Although some fruits are really prone to that. It's called biennial bearing. So you get a massive crop and then you don't get so much. So sometimes it's not a concern. But if you've got a tree that you want to give a bit of TLC to, it's a really good idea to take some of that juvenile fruit off because then it just isn't going to need quite so much energy. It's like a sort of mother who's got hundreds of children. And if you could just take a few of them away for a while and she could have a little bit of a break. Have a bit of a break. And I mean, we all have good years and bad years, don't we? 100%. Take some me time, trees. So with your uh, pip fruit, so um, apples and pears, they grow in clusters of four or five. So you want to leave about two in a cluster. And on stone fruit, which are your peaches, your plums, your nectarines, allow a five to ten centimetre spacing in between. So today's masterclass is about fertilising your plants, which is a subject gardeners can get hopelessly confused about. Rachel and I talk a lot about compost and organic matter, and they are great at providing the nutrients that your soil needs. But lots of plants need sort of extra nutrients, especially when they're actively growing, flowering and producing seeds. So that's over spring and summer. When it comes to fertilisers, there are organic fertilisers, which come from plant, mineral or animal materials, and their nutrients are released slowly over time by the act of those microorganisms in the soil. So examples of that would be blood and bone or seaweed or worm casings or animal manure. And then there's what's called synthetic fertilisers, and they are anthropogenic inorganic compounds, often byproducts of the petroleum industry. So that might be something like superphosphate or ammonium nitrate. Now, plants actually don't distinguish between organic and synthetic fertilisers at all, and they use the nutrients in them in exactly the same way. But there are some differences to how they behave in the soil. So compost and organic matter, they support beneficial microorganisms, they improve your soil structure, and they increase the water retention of your soil. And the nutrients are released slowly as the material breaks down. But that can mean they don't break down quite quickly enough to supply the growing needs of a particular crop. So sometimes a synthetic option is the practical choice. They also can be easy to use and easier to transport and much lighter to spread around. The other thing that's important to understand when it comes to fertiliser is NPK. Now there are three main elements that are essential for plant growth and they are nitrogen, which is N, which plants need for healthy leaves, phosphorus, which is P, which plants need for building strong root systems, and potassium, which is K, which boosts flower and fruit production. Now you will find these elements in the soil already, along with 30 or so additional elements like magnesium and iron, which plants need, but in much smaller amounts. Um, And a fertiliser that contains all three of these elements is what we call a complete fertiliser. And if you look on the packet, you will see what's called the NPK ratio. So that tells you how much of each of those three essential elements this uh, fertiliser contains. Now, obviously, these um, different elements support different kinds of growth. So a fertiliser designed for fruiting plants will be higher in potassium, whereas a fertiliser designed for leafy crops will be higher in nitrogen. And if you use a nitrogen-rich fertiliser on your tomatoes, say, you're going to get a lot of foliage growth instead of the flower 
flowers and the fruit that you actually want. Um, now, homemade fertilisers contain these essential nutrients, but they have a much lower ratio than what will be contained in a synthetic fertiliser. Now, whatever fertiliser you are using, the key is to use it judiciously and thoughtfully. Um, binging on rich foods is no good for people or plants, and overfeeding plants only means that not only are those nutrients likely to be washed through the soil and could end up in the waterways, it also means your plants will grow soft and lush and be a lot more vulnerable to pests and diseases. Um, as a rule of green thumb, put the work into your soil, choose plants that like your conditions, improve your drainage, add organic matter to the soil and use fertiliser then if your plants need that extra boost. Our masterclass will help you grow something healthy with Bunnings Warehouse. If weeds are a bane to your life as they are to many a gardener, herbalist Julia Sitch has the answer. She runs workshops and has a website showing people how to turn their weeds into delicious, nutritious food. Kia ora, Julia. Hello, Rachel. Now, to start off with, how did you start eating your own weeds? Did you just have so many in the garden that you didn't? You had too many to compost? <laughs> I wish it could be as easy as that, but no, I was ill, and I just I heard about making smoothies when I was recovering, and I thought. Well, you should be able to use weeds, things like dandelion and plantain because they are also greens and it just grew from there because, and then I started to notice there were heaps of weeds in the garden that I hadn't really taken in what they were. So then I went on a quest to find out exactly what they, what these plants were like um, nipplewort and herb robert, all these common weeds that I didn't even know had a medicinal, nutritional component. So I wanted to know what they were, and I found this book called Common Weeds of New Zealand um, by three New Zealand scientists, Ian Pope, Paul Champion, and Trevor James, and they have an incredibly comprehensive book on all the imported or all the introduced weeds to New Zealand. It's a really thick book, but it doesn't tell you if they're edible. It's just great for identification. So then I did my own research and started trying things and checked herbal books and just grew like that. And the more you get to know them, you see them over a life cycle of their life and how they change through the season. And that's really important to, to know them in all stages. So you were recovering from a stroke, is that right? Well, it was a brain bleed, yeah. And um, I had an autoimmune disease of low platelets, and so the two together are not too flash. But anyway, that's all the past, and I'm all recovered. And I'm not against using um, conventional medicine. I think you just have to use everything available to get well, and then you just move on and keep looking after your, your health. So what kind of um, difference did you notice once you started making weed smoothies? Well, I had a lot more energy, and um, I had a greater tolerance for sun, being out in the sun. I don't burn like I used to. And you just overall feel really well, and, and you know you're nourishing yourself because of all the, all the minerals and vitamins and antioxidants and all those goodies that those weeds have. Because weeds are survivors, aren't they? So they're really mineral rich. They are. They are very much so. They'll be the survivors of any disaster. In fact, they've come through thousands of years of floods and droughts and um, overcome everything and are still around unchanged. 
So I, I believe that the more we eat of them and uh, appreciate them, the more they give back to us. So it's a kind of a, a, a relationship you develop with them. So if I head out into my garden and I say, I want to pick some weeds, I've got lots of weeds, and I want to make a smoothie or a salad, what do you recommend I should start with? Well, I recommend chickweed because most people have that and it's a really tender, um, succulent, it's not bitter, it's not hairy, it's not unpleasant to eat, it doesn't have an incredible flavour and it's not spicy or anything but it's very nutritious and it's a great salad uh, plant all winter. It's, it doesn't like heat and, and bright sun, so it's going to ease off now, but it will still grow in shady places or under other plants. So that one and um, dandelion and even speedwell, which is a, another creeping one like chickweed, but it has little blue flowers. And if you just take the, the end shoots, the new shoots of the plant, and cut them up finely, you can make a great salad and then you add your other things and you, none of the flavours stand out. And you can just add those to smoothies and add nice fruits and nuts and you end up with something really delicious. And do you just like have a base of apple juice or something like that? Um, I use water, but my mother uses pineapple juice and um, I like adding half an avocado when they're you know plentiful because they make it so lovely and creamy. And, um, yeah, yeah, you add fruit to make it suit your taste and then you'll find that you're going to get used to the, you know, the green taste and or, you know, a bit more bitter and you can have, if you don't want to have so much fruit, you can lessen the fruit or you can just use berries if you're not keen on bananas, you know, you can create all sorts of things. We can't eat all weeds. There are some poisonous ones. So which ones should we steer clear of? The, the commonest one not to eat in your garden is euphorbia or milkweed. And when you break the stem, you have this white, milky um, substance that oozes out. It will irritate your mucous membranes in your mouth and burn it for two days. So don't eat that. But you can put it on a wart on your skin on the outside. Um and you don't eat fumitory, and I also don't eat scarlet pimpernel. And so these plants are all medicinal, but you don't just randomly eat them. And also you definitely don't eat foxglove leaves. And you've got a really great comprehensive list of um, weeds on your website with really good photographs, so people could go and have a look at it. Um, tell us your website again. The website is www.juliasedibleweeds.com. There's tons of material on the website. I basically garden my weeds and I decide which ones I want to keep and which I clear away because I also want to grow vegetables, but I think they complement my garden and I can let them grow, say, on the very edge of the bed or where I'm not going to use the garden totally. So I... I include them as my garden plants, but they don't take over. I mean, I sometimes they do when, like, I'm waiting for my cabbages to grow. They grow all around the cabbages, and I can harvest them. You see, that's the beauty. You, you're actually getting food from your garden while you wait for your actual cabbages to grow. And they're mulching your soil, aren't they, as well? Yes, they're keeping the soil covered and cool and moist, and they also encourage lots of microorganisms in the ground, so you're getting more diversity in the soil as well as more diversity in your diet. That's got to be win-win. Thank you for being a wonderful weed ambassador.
So I'm going to have a chat now to Katie Ent, who lives with her husband, Gerard, on the beautiful Great Barrier Island, which is on the outer Hauraki Gulf, about 100 kilometres um, from central Auckland, an island of 285 square kilometres. And she and Gerald run Okiwi Passion, which is a market garden that's absolutely packed with this huge variety of heirloom and hybrid veggies and fruit and herbs and free-range chickens. And they sell the, the produce that they grow to local cafes and they put it in weekly uh, veggies boxes in season and um, they sell it at the markets in Trifina. Hi Katie, how are you? Yeah, very good Jay, nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too. And tell me about your garden. Wow, it's um, it's a very, it's sort of a rambling place. We, it was set up as a horticultural property many years ago so we've got bamboo shelter belts everywhere which we couldn't do without because we're subject to these very um, strong easterly winds, which are salty. They come over the over the ocean. Um, which the, the bamboo can be a blessing and a curse at the same time. It tends to cast a bit too much shade in the cooler months, but um, it generates a lot. It generates a lot of um, bamboo leaves, a lot of stakes. We chip the bamboo for mulch. Um, and we've got amazing soil, incredible soil. So we've got two blessings. It's alluvial and it's volcanic. But it's black and it's just deep and um, very, very fertile. The place is set up as a horticultural block by Gerald's mum and dad. So his parents are, of course, Dick and Anne-Marie Ent, you know, very well known in horticultural yes, circles. that's right. Sadly, Dick passed away um, a year ago, so he's sadly missed. But yes, so this was originally the Okiwi Babako Company land and um, we've been running it as Okiwi Passion since 2007. I remember you telling me that you used to visit it um, before you moved there yourself and just sort of hanker after the soil. Absolutely, yes, I was actually just remembering that now. <laughs> so you and Gerald moved there and you decided to set up this market garden and why did you decide to do that, Katie? Well, I had been very inspired in... The previous years I'd worked, um, I was training to be a Steiner teacher and I worked at the Valeda Gardens in, in Havelock North and that property really inspired me because it was so diverse. They grew a lot of medicinal herbs and they also had various fruit trees and the whole place just buzzed with life and I thought I want to do something like this. I always had that idea in the back of my head that one day I wanted to have a really diverse property and, and grow. And before you guys started growing produce on Great Barrier, where were veggies coming from? We really only grow a small portion of what actually is needed on the barrier. The shops buy their produce from town. It comes in by boat, usually. Sometimes they have things flown in by plane. And then the locals often will, well, they'll buy from the shops, but also um, a lot of people do online shopping. So tell me what crops you guys grow. Well, our big one that's grown slowly over the years is it started off more as a masculine mix, and that was particularly for the cafes. And then we started playing around with microgreens, and so we now do a salad mix, which has a high proportion of microgreens in it. We, we use radishes, sunflowers, and peas in particular, and um, we're starting to incorporate beetroot now as well because it's such a gorgeous red colour and then just the leaves, and then we mix that with a blend of red and green um, leaves, which we harvest when they're not too large, and we mix that all up. So that's been like a huge winner, and then last year for the first time we started supplying the shops, and that's changed a lot. 
So that would be one of our main crops, and we've built a, a new greenhouse, which we actually crowdfunded for in order to grow our, our microgreens in there. We used to do winter boxes, but we're now focusing more on the, the summer season. So we, we're just starting our first boxes. We have quite a long, extended sort of end of summer, autumn season. And you grow fruit as well? Yes, we've planted um, one main orchard and a smaller orchard. So just the regular, you know, temperate fruit. Um, we grow various plums, some apricots. Peaches don't do so well here. It's just too humid and they get a lot of brown rot. Nectarines are just no good here at all for us. Um, they split and they get brown rot and curly leaf. Um, and I think a lot of that is because of the bamboo shelter belts. It's just containing things too much and making it too humid. And then we have apples and pears, and we've chosen those varieties to be um, disease-resistant, um, and they're doing very, very well. And then on top of that, we've got bananas. We've got lots of banana plantations, and we grow cherimoyas, which um, Gerald's mum and dad collected from South America in their heyday. So quite a diverse range of fruit. So you mentioned the bamboo, and I know... Um you know, Great Barrier is this amazing escape from modern life, but one of the pressures that you do still face there is weeds. How do you deal with them in an organic garden? So our first line of defence is um, if we've got a newly prepared bed and we've sown or we've planted, is to hoe regularly. And what it does is when the weeds are just tiny, they're just emerging from the soil, you drag your wire hoe through the soil and it just basically pulls out all those minute weeds, which half of which you don't even see. So that's our first line of defence. Then we'll use a, um, a stirrup hoe if the weeds are a bit too big for the wire hoe or if the soil's too dry. The wire hoe works really well on damp soil. As time permits, we chip our bamboo or barna grass, which is a sort of a subtropical grass, which has a perfect carbon to nitrogen balance. And we chip that into big bins, which we'll bring to the gardens, and then we spread the mulch quite thick. But, of course, as well as um, some of those challenges that lots of gardeners would empathise with, you've had some problems with your husband's health too. Can you just tell oh, me about Gerald's that? Health. Well, the good news is Gerald's health is fantastic now. Gerald had kidney disease before we moved to the island, and his kidneys declined quite sharply, and he ended up having to have a, a kidney transplant. And so January 2006, and we knew that we would have to wait at least a year before moving to the barrier. So we did that just because in that first year is your highest risk of rejection. And we moved here, and very sadly, within two years of moving here, Gerald um, rejected the kidney and um, got very, very sick. So he spent the best part of six months um, in Auckland. Um, he had to have the kidney removed and then he had to train to do hemodialysis at home. And of course, on the barrier, you're not on mains power. So it was no, off the we're grid not on dialysis. Mains power. And honestly, the, um, the home hemo unit in Green Lane were incredible. They were so supportive. And, you know, it's the New Zealand thing of allow your patients to be independent and be in control of their own health and take responsibility where they can. So they moved heaven and earth in order to um, make it possible for Gerald to dialyse here. We had to get a, a generator. Um, the machine was set up in our bedroom. Um, the plumbing was set up for it. All the, um, the supplies for the dialysis were sent out by boat every month, and it's quite amazing how much was required. So he pretty much had resigned himself to a life of dialysis, which is very limiting. And then miraculously in um, 2014, two weeks before Christmas, we got a phone call in the middle of the night from 
the Auckland Hospital from the renal team saying that there was a kidney available um, for Gerald and that we want to go ahead with a transplant. And he's had that transplant and now his health is back to absolute full strength? Yeah, apart from the fact that he's got to take medicine four times a day, it's pretty normal. So it's and that, and that, of course, has enabled us as a business to take a few big steps forward, you know, because he's now got the time and the, and the energy. What an amazing, amazing story. And just so happy to hear how well your husband is doing. And yeah. I'm not surprised, flourishing in that beautiful soil under that beautiful Great Barrier sunshine. Thanks so much, Katie. No worries. Wherever your garden grows, grow something with Bunnings. <laughs> Now it's time to get to the mailbag, Rachel, and see what questions have come in on mailbox at nzgardener.co.nz. Well, Joe, the mailbox is overflowing with questions about oxalis. The mailbox is always overflowing with questions about oxalis because, of course, once you've got oxalis, it's really hard to get rid of it because in the trying to get rid of it, you tend to spread it. It reproduces by seed dispersal producing these tiny, tiny, tiny bulblets under the soil. And every time you disturb the soil by weeding, you tend to spread the bulbs. Yeah, I once spent hours and hours digging each bulb out. And it was okay for a little while, but then I put some horse manure down, it made it really fertile, and they all came back the next year. I know a gardener who actually took all the soil out and sieved it by Mm. hand to a depth of about 15 inches, and still the oxalis came back. Honestly, this stuff is hard to kill. Um, When people ask about how to get rid of oxalis, I mean... Nobody wants to hear it, but very careful hand weeding where you remove all the bulbs does work. It just takes so much time and so much commitment. Yeah, and there is a product called Death to Oxalis that burns the leaves, which then die off. So it starves the bulbs, but it's not systemic, so you need to use it each time new leaves appear. And it only works on pink, purple or white flowered oxalis, not the creeping yellow flowered type. You can also use a homemade baking soda spray or, of course, boiling water. And you can deprive it of light. So that means laying something over the top like a physical barrier, such as um, heavy black plastic or cardboard with organic matter laid on the top, or even a very deep mulch of bark that will slow it down. It won't wipe it out, but it does mean that when the plants emerge, you can see them because it There's not a whole crowd of them and pull them out one by one and hopefully get on top of it that way. You know what? You can eat oxalis. My cousin had a beautiful crop of oxalis in her front yard. She came home with her children and she found this man who was very polite but told her he'd walked into her front yard and he was harvesting her oxalis to use in a fancy restaurant in Wellington. Nice. Yeah. I hope she got invited there for a free meal since she was supplying them with their produce. So we've promised this podcast will have more mysterious deaths than any other podcast. What are we killing off this week? Well, Joe, I'm afraid to say there's a plant that I kill every year. I'm in love with it, but I kill it. And that is Baronia megastigma. You're like a serial killer of Baronia. I know. It's unhealthy. But a lot of people have unhealthy relationship with this plant, so... You smell it before you see it. It's got brown flowers, but you can get pink ones. They're very insignificant, but it has a beautiful pineapple lemony fragrance. And I just adore it. And as soon as they come into the garden centre, I go and buy one for myself. And what kills it? 
I just forget to water it. They are very sensitive. They are from west, southwestern Australia and they need the exact right climate to thrive. And I was actually reading an Australian plants person complaining that everyone said that Australian plants were super sensitive because baronia has given them a bad reputation. Because it needs sort of partial shade and then absolutely perfect drainage, but also soil that holds moisture. Yeah, so you mustn't let them get waterlogged. And it's also a good idea to mulch around them as well and prune them after flowering. But having said all that, even in the wild, they are relatively short-lived. So don't feel guilty, people, about killing your baronia. I do it too. It's okay. Just think of them as a really insignificant-looking but beautiful-smelling bunch of flowers that you buy yourself every year. So that's another week of death and life in our gardens and hopefully in yours. Um, We'll be back next week to talk about what we're growing and talk to some amazing gardeners around New Zealand. We'll hope you'll come back and join us. See you next week.